This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians, healthcare providers, nurse providers all over US and abroad. I am Amit Ghosh, an internal medicine physician practicing at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We're going to talk about the alternate forms of ventilation to treat COVID-19 patients. Just a short recap, we came to know at the end of December 2019 about this new illness which was causing havoc in China. People were presenting with pneumonia, respiratory failure, but over the last five months, we have realized so many different aspects of this illness, which we now call as COVID-19. Today, we are joined in this podcast to talk about alternative form of ventilation by two expert respiratory therapists, Mr. James Baker and Mr. Stephen Holitz, both of them practice in the Mayo Clinic, Rochester. Thank you for joining James and Steve. Thank you as well. James, the first question is for you. Can you clarify what is meant by alternate ventilation? Yeah, absolutely. I I really think you can break this down into two separate components. Uh, We have alternative strategies for ventilation, and these are usually individualized to the patient. And, um, you know, they're based on a detailed assessment at the bedside by a clinician such as a respiratory therapist. And so, for example, you may have a patient on a particular device and we may use alternative ventilation strategies based on the disease process. We also have alternative options for ventilation that are based on a device design and the ensuing limitations. So with COVID-19, we've heard a lot of discussion Uh, centered around ventilation devices, you know, due to the massive surge of patients in some areas. And many hospitals across the nation utilize devices that are non-invasive, and these are often characterized as alternative ventilators. So my next question is to Steve. Why was the alternative form of ventilation necessary during this COVID pandemic? Well, I think if you look at some of the SCCM projections, they were talking about up to a million patients having COVID and 50% of those may need uh, ventilatory assistance. That would be 500,000 patients needing some sort of ventilatory assistance. Uh, The U.S. inventory for ICU vents is only about 62,000. So we're way short of ventilators. So we need to employ any form that we can, whether invasive or non-invasive. Boy, that must be a very stressful period for you folks when you, when you heard the numbers, I bet. Uh, what would be the kind of criteria which you would adopt at the front line to use alternative ventilation? Steve? Um, Well, it would be the same almost as uh, we normally do. So if you can't oxygenate a patient, and most of these COVID patients suffered from hypoxemia, if you can't give them supplemental oxygen by conventional means, meaning a simple face mask or nasal cannula, then you need to escalate treatment to like a nasal high flow device or a non-invasive ventilator. A non-invasive ventilator, you mean the BiPAPs and? Correct, BiPAPs that we use uh, in the hospital. We have high-end ICU bi-level devices that work very well. Uh, We also developed how to use home 
BiPAPs for COVID patients. So if you get, if you were to take all the cases that you have seen till now and what has been documented, how many patients are ending up in a ventilator and how many are we able to manage by this alternative form of ventilation? I understand only a small number of patients still are requiring intubation and mechanical ventilation, like we know mechanical ventilation and the rest are being treated by alternative uh, ventilation. Is that correct in my thinking? Um, yes, yes. If you looked at some of the early reports out of Italy, they were saying that they weren't having much success with non-invasive ventilation and nasal high flow, and there was concern that maybe sh these patients should be intubated right away. I think part of that was because they were just overwhelmed, and the other part was uh, the people, having people that were trained to use these devices. Here we've done very well with our nasal high flow devices and non-invasive ventilation, keeping these patients from being being innovated. Mm -hmm. And if I can add to one, you know, one thing that Steve mentioned, we, we had a slight advantage in that, you know, we were able to see how COVID-19 was sort of interacting with patients all over the world, you know, maybe a week or two before we were seeing them on our own, in our own hospitals across the nation. And, and this allowed us to sort of take a look at things that were maybe working well or weren't working well and sort of start thinking about that and developing strategies. What particular thing that you were looking at which helped you get to this conclusion that you could use non-invasive or alternative ventilation in these patients? Is there something particular you saw in the data or the findings from Italy and China and other countries? I think it was that these patients uh, overall, the problem wasn't uh, ventilation as much as hypoxemia. Mm. Uh, they had very compliant lungs and were able to ventilate, but they had were high, extremely hypoxemic. So the goal of our non-invasive ventilators or with our non-invasive ventilators in nasal high flow is that they can provide high levels of FiO2. I want you to stress this point again, and I've, I've all the readings that I've done and, and I've heard, you make a very important distinction that they mentions that doctors are, are amazed at how low the oxygen is in these patients, a lot of them don't seem to, seem to be on extreme distress at that point. And in the past, you just look at the oxygen, it's low, and you do put a mechanical ventilation on them and the outcome is not good. But from what you're saying, hypoxemia is the predominant component, uh, which, which you noticed was a pointer that helped you come to this conclusion. Is that correct? Correct, yes. And the hypoxemia, it set in incredibly fast, you know, on some of these patients. When they were admitted, we would see these patients, we would monitor them, and, and things might look okay. And within an hour or two, things were drastically different. And with a lot of other types of disease processes, they typically don't happen that fast. And in this particular subset, there was a, a certain high level of speed there where these patients were changing uh, their overall condition. Do we know why that happens? Do we have an explanation of that yet? Or that's a uniform uh, finding, I agree. I wonder whether there's some kind of shunting of blood going on, because they are not going to develop pneumonia or consolidation that fast. But you're right, we don't know whether shunting or some form of other methods are responsible for the hypoxemia. It'd be worth noting, and I'm sure we'll hear from you subsequently on that. But Compared to the non-COVID patients, which you've done a ton of, you put non-invasive ventilation, 
what are the different changes you have to make when you are using alternative ventilation on a COVID patient? James? Yeah, I think the biggest difference in application, you know, for us has come from the increased risk of exposure to healthcare workers. And so these non-invasive devices, they have the potential to aerosolize a virus. And so we've made changes in order to reduce those risks. Um, things like strategically adding viral filters to our non-invasive devices. Um, we've also looked at the, at the practice from sort of a global view. And we've looked at all the different alternative ventilation strategies and or devices that we would typically use. And it's allowed us as an institution to sort of plan appropriately for PPE. And so by looking you know, individually at the system and at the bigger picture, it's allowed us to sort of have a, a pretty good strategy on how to combat it. Um, overall, it's, it's an increased awareness you know, of, of the, the device's uh, capabilities and what that means for the healthcare workers taking care of it. So from a system standpoint, you mentioned about the device standpoint where you need to put the filter, but from the system standpoint, the room and all that, you have to place them in a room like a critical care ICU with particular flow characteristics of the room, or it can be any general room where you can use these filters. Yeah, we looked at all those things. And certainly if you have negative air pressure rooms, you know, that's certainly helpful with a patient like this. You know, there are limitations though. Not every hospital has a large number of these types of rooms. And so I think you're sort of forced into looking at all different kinds of strategies. Okay, I'm gonna put my sickest patients in this particular room and, you know, maybe maybe a patient that's not quite as acute will be in this room. But to answer your question, yeah, we had to look at the entire picture, the entire room, and sort of make, you know, minute adjustments to how we would handle certain devices in those areas. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of, lot of thinking and, and planning. Um, what are the advantages or disadvantages or problems that you have you encountered in COVID and what can be avoided by using this alternative uh, ventilation? Steve? I think the biggest advantage is, is just like anytime we use non-invasive in ARDS, if we can avoid intubation, we number one, we're freeing up an ICU vent for a sicker patient. Uh, then we're all the problems when we intubate somebody, the problem of uh, risk of developing ventilator-associated pneumonia, uh, the problem of risk of accidental extubation with the ET tube, and all the other complications that go with, with the normally intubated patients are the same advantages of using non-invasive uh, ventilation. Uh, one of the problems we encounter is, uh, uh, and with nasal high flow, is what do you do when you have to transport these patients? Mm -hmm. uh, you need to transport these patients, and we have filters on them, but there's always a risk of accidental disconnection during the transport. And we've actually developed a hood, a filtered hood, that will go over the patient during transport so that in case of accidental disconnection or they're pulling the mask off, there's still the, the aerosol should be contained. Do you find that a lot of patients accept these devices? Are they anxious or do you have to give them something for anxiety or they are so sick and tired that they accept yeah, the mask and the hood and everything else? Rarely do they uh, 
rejected. I mean, there's people, again, it's the same as you have some people that are claustrophobic. If we see those types of patients, we'll use a different mask interface. We have a, what we call a fireman's mask or a full face mask that is generally better accepted than, than just our regular face mask. If we know they absolutely won't wear a non-invasive mask, we'll put them on a nasal high flow device, which is just a nasal cannula that provides high oxygen flows. Sure, sure. And James, how hard is to how hard is it to maintain the equipment during the pandemic? Uh, there's, there's certainly been some challenges. You know, if you look at the disinfection side of things, um, overall, I feel like our process is very good, but we've had to make slight changes to it, and those changes have created a bit of a ripple effect. You know, for example, if we were using a particular device in a in a COVID patient room, um, we may have to add another layer of disinfection prior to moving that equipment out of the room so it can be processed you know later on so slight changes there um, adding viral filters you know to our ventilation or oxygenation uh, devices required some practice changes because the integrity of the filters don't last forever you know mm -hmm. and so we would have to change these filters at certain intervals and you really had to sort of watch to make sure that they were working you know as advertised um, also challenged with supply issues. You know, I think a lot of hospitals across the nation were challenged with supply issues of, of consumable or disposable products like these viral filters or other plastic adapters. And our department was very proactive in, in trying to secure additional products when we were able. Um, and when we weren't able, we, we partnered with um, the Department of Engineering to see, you know, what things they could make for us. And they ended up uh, 3D printing some consumables to sort of help us uh, bolster our supply a little bit. So, so from whatever you're saying, James, uh, it's no no doubt, and we've heard it that there is increased use of PPE during handling the equipment, handling the patient, changing, transporting, and many many other reasons. So, some of the innovations you said, 3D printing, has helped it locally to help. Uh, what about remote monitoring device? Uh, could we reduce the PPE use by using some remote monitoring device in these patients to uh, help you with the process of taking care of these patients? Yeah, on some of the devices you can use remote monitoring. You know, uh, Steve mentioned earlier about mechanically uh, ventilated patients or invasively ventilated patients. There is a potential there to take the monitor of the actual ventilator, move it outside the room. That way you can make adjustments to that device and not have to go in the room and therefore you can save a little bit of PPE in the process, but it won't work with every device. Mm -hmm. well, Steve, this question is for you. How easy it is to learn these techniques? If I'm a new respiratory therapist, I'm just off the school and I'm just getting in. I graduate and day one, I get into COVID situation. How long will it take to learn this stuff? Well, well I don't think it's, it's not that hard if you're a respiratory therapist coming out of school. Um, if you've never done any ventilation at all, then it's a little bit more difficult. And it's important to understand, uh, number one, you have to know the device you're using, whether it be an ICU non-invasive versus a home non-invasive. So you have to know how that device operates and what its limitations are. Uh, take, for example, an ICU non-invasive ventilator can supply high concentrations of oxygen, high FiO2s, but a home non-invasive ventilator doesn't have that capability. You have to bleed in a little oxygen. 
So I think it's important to understand the equipment first. And then the learning isn't that hard. It's similar to any ventilation. I think a lot of it is in knobology. It's like you almost have to jump into, for somebody who's just graduating now, you're just jumping into it. Would you allow a medical student to handle it by themselves or would you say don't even touch it till uh, you go through us? I think I think you need a RT or somebody who has experience with it. I, I if you've heard or seen some of the news out of the East Coast, that's one of the problems that they had. wasn't that they were running out of ventilators and such, but people who knew how to run ventilators, mm -hmm. they were in vast shortage of. And I know Mayo has helped. We've helped remotely trying to address that issue. So how do we clone respiratory therapists during a pandemic? Is it some way you can teach somebody down there with a, a tele-ICU saying what to take, how to assemble, how to disassemble? Um, um, because I don't think you can have that many experts like you in a short run when we need it. Have you had, had to do some of these with the East Coast? Yeah, our, uh, our physicians here on our EICU and our COVID team has done that with the East Coast. Uh, we've helped in the background, or if they have questions on, on ventilators, uh, we've helped them, and uh, occasionally we'll get on telemedicine and, and talk to them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great uh, resource and a great way to do it because you can, one person can help with multiple patients then. Yeah, it'll be good to have some training videos. There's nothing like hands-on experience, but having some training videos, the simulations to show how you do it. But then when you talk about non-invasive, yes, it's very complicated because of the filters and uh, some of them have negative flow uh, in the room, but where can your techniques be used, the non-invasive techniques? James, can you, I know ICU is a different setup. Can you use it in the emergency department, in the general ward, in the field, in the ambulance, in the homes? I mean, now we are trying to keep people at home with their nurse. Where, where can we use these? alternative ventilations? That's a great question. You know, and I think it's important to remember that, you know, COVID patients basically have the same requirements as, as all our patients. You know, our job is to provide the best quality of care possible. So although the environment that we may be in, you know, requires alternative strategies, the end goal is really the same. You know, many, if not all the changes that we've made in the ICU um, can be used in other environments. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, general wards, emergency department, out in the field, in the ambulance. I think all of those areas are all areas where you're certainly going to see these types of patients and the techniques that we're doing here in-house can be used out there. Now, of course, there are equipment limitations and things like that, but the techniques, the theory, all that stuff will go across lines, right? And so you can use those in all other areas. It takes teamwork. I think that's the bottom line. It takes communication and teamwork to make it happen. And if I could add just a little on that, as we have, we have patients that come in the hospital that don't need to be in the ICU, but come in with their home BiPAPs mm -hmm. and they have COVID. And we've worked with them. We've set, put filters on their equipment so they can use their home BiPAPs. That's great, that's great. So Steve, um, we've heard about um, all the different kinds of ventilation, but we've also heard about different techniques being used on the patients. And one of the techniques is prone. I've heard about prone ventilation in ICU setting, and the patient is mechanically ventilated 
but is prone ventilation, a prone posture and positioning as effective in non-invasive or in alternative ventilation? Absolutely. Um, there's a few right now, there's a few case studies out uh, that have been published, published showing that. We're actually studying that ourselves, but we've been using that on these patients and it's pretty impressive. Uh, these patients may oxygenation may be poor even on high FiO2 and we tell them roll over on your stomach and what's nice is they respond, they talk to you, they roll over on their stomach and their saturations come right up. So it's been a very effective technique to help us with their oxygenation. So if you see that helps, it's only then that you, that you adopt the posture. If it does not change with prone posture, you won't do it on a patient or you would give them a trial anyway. Is there a way of finding out who will benefit and who will not? We may give them a, a trial, but usually you'll see a response. Um, it's amazing. Some of the patients actually have told us, well, this is the way I sleep at home. Is it um, immediate or is, does it take 5, 10 minutes, 15 minutes? It may take a few go? minutes, but you see okay. it, it doesn't take too long and you'll know one way or the other. Okay. And again, it's not like prone to the severe ARDS innovative patient where it's rather labor intensive. Again, these patients are awake, alert, with a little assistance, they can roll over into a modified prone position where we just put a, pay, a pillow under their chest and their pelvis, and they can lay comfortably like that. Wow. And, if, and if I can add to what Steve's saying there, he, he's 100% correct. I think there's some misconceptions about proning out there that you, that you need you know, a certain type of bed or a certain type of technology to do this, and you don't. You can prone a patient anywhere. You know, we've prone patients in ambulances before and, and airplanes and things like that. And so I think, you know, the earlier, the better, right? Mm -hmm. Do a test run, see if you get the response that you're looking for. But it doesn't take anything special other than a lot of extra hands to help you do it safely, you know? That's great. Uh, we've seen this uh, pictures. I've seen pictures of helmet uh, ventilation. James, can you tell me what this helmet form of alternative ventilation techniques are or what is, what is this yeah i'll be honest i've never had the chance to use one they're used in europe um to my knowledge i'm not sure if the fda has cleared them for use in the united states but the basic premise is that it's that it's a helmet that that goes over the patient's head and um, it, it offers a few advantages that our current masks don't have and so if you think about our current masks um you know they're strapped onto a patient's face and one of the things that we really uh, are sort of concerned about with that is skin integrity, right? So pressure ulcers on the face due to wearing these masks. With the helmet, uh, you know, option, obviously there isn't, you don't have those skin integrity issues. And so that's one advantage. Um, I think another advantage is some patients are very claustrophobic. They don't like having things on their face. And although this is sort of a, a helmet that fits over top, um, many you know, in, in studies that I've read have responded well to it. So on a, on a very basic level, it offers a few advantages that we currently don't have. Now, I don't know if there's centers out there that have, that have gained access to these for COVID-19. I don't know, Steve, uh, do you know of anyone that's used these in the States? Sure, there, uh, Chicago, there's a hospital in Chicago that has used them, actually published one study that with better outcomes 
very small study. I think you hit very well on the advantages of them. I think it has potential. The disadvantage of them is because you have such a large amount of volume of gas in there, it takes more than 100 liters a minute flow to wash out the rebreathed CO2. So you use an incredible amount of gas. And then just the cost of the helmet versus a face mask is probably four times the cost. I mean, we actually did look into those a little bit, uh, but they're, they're available for emergency use, but the supply is just limited. You can't get any. So if you're running a busy hospital and you have a supply chain, which brings you all this oxygen for so many patients that you use, of course, these patients will be using a lot more oxygen. Maybe you have to just give them three or four times the normal amount for the same results. So. Yeah, yeah, and, and oxygen consumption is a real issue in this pandemic. Uh, there's hospitals out in New York that have enough ventilators, but you don't have enough oxygen to supply all the ventilators. And not just the oxygen in, out in the tank, but how much you can deliver to the room, which is based on the sides of the pipes. So there's many things to keep in mind. So before, so we've been talking about alternative form of ventilation to treat COVID-19. And we have been joined over the last half hour by Mr. James Baker and Mr. Steve Hollett, respiratory therapist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Before I wrap up, uh, James and Steve, uh, any last thoughts as to how uh, innovation is going on with uh, in your specialty? and where you see uh, applying these techniques that you've learned in future such similar crisis? Yeah, you know, I think with any, any sort of challenge you're faced, you know, you, you always learn some things, right? You're going to, at some point, we're going to get a chance to sort of look back at this and, and, and take a real good look at things that we did well and maybe, maybe things we didn't do as well at. And we'll look at those opportunities, and, and I know we'll make some changes based on that. Um, you know, there, there's, uh, there, I think there are some opportunities worth going after, um, you know, things like, you know, proning patients, right? I, I think there's still places across the United States that, that maybe don't utilize this particular technique as much as, as some others. And so I think if we can show that it was beneficial and maybe this will, will get the usage out there a little bit more. So I, I think we'll learn things and, um, you know, there's always a silver lining in here somewhere and, and maybe remains to be seen just yet, but I know it's out there. Yeah, and I, I think what, what's impressed me about this is it's shown how well we work as a team. Yeah, we have great outcomes and it's because we work as a team. So what I heard from you, James and Stephen, that it's not only the teamwork, but also skill sets, learning it properly, learning the techniques, and not doing it the right way will cause more harm to the provider, to the hospital and system and the patient. So learning it right uh, is going to be important. Teamwork is absolutely essential. Innovative techniques that you have adopted, like prone positioning, in fact, it might become so common that it may not be innovative anymore. It might become routine. And then some of the other systems that you have brought out, helmet technology, but it sounds good on theory, but if it's going to exhaust all the oxygen in my hospital, should I have a, a kind of a rush of patients with COVID, that's going to be an issue, but it's an alternative which is there. Uh, I thank you for bringing the update. Uh, we are going to continue bringing you updates on the situation. 
as the events unfold. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week. Thank you.